you know, this is um, an amazing accomplishment in and of itself, and I really do think this will be compared with the Apollo space program in the future. Um, but we still aren't there. Again, we can smile, but we can't pop the champagne cork until such time as we know it's safe, we know it's effective, and we know that the patient or that the population is fully protected. Getting to this point on a COVID-19 vaccine is a huge deal, but getting across the finish line is also extremely complicated. I mean, I'm one of the early trial participants and I'm only about two and a half months out. So they only have safety evidence for two and a half to three months. Okay. And, and that's not a long time. And I think it's more of a legal question as to will states be required to do this? And, and one of the hot buzzwords that undoubtedly is gonna enter the lexicon soon will be mandate. And before we move on, I want to remind you that the biggest source of St. Louis Public Radio's funding comes from listeners like you. Because you value what you hear on St. Louis on the Air, donate today. Go to stlpr.org donate. That's stlpr.org donate. I'm Sarah Fenske. This is St. Louis on the Air. Both Pfizer and Moderna recently announced that they have developed vaccines capable of blocking the coronavirus. Both have shown better than 94% effectiveness in late-stage trials. Those are some great numbers, and they came earlier than originally expected. So does this mean the pandemic is over? Well, not by a long shot. This may feel like the end of a race, but in reality, it's just the beginning of a very complicated effort to get the vaccine distributed and administered. And joining us to explain what happens next and some of the pitfalls we could face is Michael Kinch. He's an associate vice chancellor at Washington University in St. Louis and the founder and director of the Centers for Research Innovation in Biotechnology and Drug Development. Michael Kinch, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be back. So two vaccines. This feels so exciting. How did the U.S. get to this point so quickly? Well, I think we're all amazed, but frankly, there was an enormous amount of work and money that was targeted and getting us to this point. And we really have exceeded all expectations. Um, the, we, we, we basically, uh, we gambled and it's come up right so far, but we're not quite there yet because we need to know, A, are these vaccines safe in the long term? And B, are they effective in the long term? So talk to me about those two things. I mean, we're hearing these great results. There's all sorts of numbers being tossed around. Is it not necessarily the case, first, that they're even going to be effective? Well, so we know that in the short term, which by that I mean basically two, three months, that there appears to be um, efficacy in that we can prevent disease from occurring and, and infection from occurring with these two vaccines that we've seen so far. And then there's some early data from Johnson & Johnson indicating maybe a third. What we don't know, frankly, both with these vaccines and with the virus in general, is whether that protection is durable, whether mm -hmm. it will last for months or years. Have there been issues with vaccines that have showed results, like what we're seeing here, where it turns out, oh, yeah, that's only going to protect you for six months? Yeah, that has happened. Oh, um, no. For example, with the pertussis. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I'm, and I'm not saying that it will happen, sure. but with the pertussis vaccine, um, we actually, the one that is given out now really only lasts for a few years and you have to get boosted. 
Um, there's a little bit of a different situation with influenza, where the virus itself is changing so rapidly that we need to basically update the vaccine every year. But with infection itself, I mean, one of the things to keep in mind is there are seven different family members of what are known as coronaviruses. Hmm. Four of them contribute to the common cold, and you can be infected year after year after year with the same virus. Now, we don't know if that's going to be the case with this virus, but we don't know that it's not. So, again, I, I tell people it's okay to smile, but I wouldn't pop the champagne cork quite yet. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good way to put it there. You also mentioned that we don't know about the long-term safety. Has there ever been a study where it's had these results so far? Everybody seems to be safe, but then something terrible happens to the participants uh, on down the line? Well, I wouldn't necessarily say something terrible, but there can be untoward effects. And, you know, in some cases there can be, even after a vaccine has been registered and approved by the FDA, it sometimes has to be pulled off the market. And, you know, an example of that was the rotavirus vaccine a few years ago. Um, and another example was actually the, the um, um, oh, good Lord, I'm forgetting the name of it, the, the tick-borne flea disease okay, um, and uh, West Nile uh, virus. Excuse me, it wasn't that. Long story short, yes, it can happen. Now, keep in mind that on average, it's about a decade and a half worth of clinical trials before a vaccine is approved. Mm. And that decade and a half gives you a lot of time to find safety, and the vast, vast, vast majority of vaccines are safe and effective. So but with this, though, we haven't had a decade and a half. Exactly. And so that is really the, the issue. And what I meant to say earlier was Lyme disease. The mm. Lyme disease vaccine had to be pulled off the market because of safety. So, yeah, again, here our issue is that we've only got, a, I mean, I'm one of the early trial participants and I'm only about two and a half months out. So they only have safety evidence for two and a half to three months. Okay. And, and that's not a long time. Now, you mentioned you are in this trial and I don't want to inadvertently give any fuel to anti-vaxxers. Um, overall, you must feel hopeful about this thing or you would not have enrolled in this trial. Well, I enrolled in the trial because, frankly, I felt it was a responsibility. My clinical colleagues are putting their life on the line, and the least we can do is to, is to enter on a trial. And, but I am optimistic about the safety. The early results look really good. Um, the thing we just have to keep in mind is that the immune system takes a long time to really get going, and sometimes that can mean that the toxicities can take a while. Well, this is some really valuable perspective, and, uh, and we want to invite you. If you have questions for Michael Kinch, you can give us a call at 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. Or you can send us a tweet at STL on air. You can also email us at talk at stlpublicradio.org. And Michael, again, is an associate vice chancellor at Washington University here in St. Louis. He's also the founder and director of the Centers for Research Innovation in Biotechnology and Drug Development. Michael, one of the other big questions that people like me find ourselves having is, are there going to be enough of these vaccines for everyone who wants one? Is there is there a simple answer to that question, or does that get really complicated? It gets complicated, but I would say that what we need to do first is get it into our healthcare workers, those who are highest at risk. And hopefully this will be done in a, in a good way that as more vaccine is being manufactured and they're going full tilt right now for the two vaccines that look promising, that more and more will become available. And I think the expectation is that probably late spring, it'll start being um, administered widely. 
And hopefully by the end of the summer, we'll have pretty much all of the Americans protected. Hmm. Um, internationally, it's probably going to take quite a bit longer. We did have a question that came in via our St. Louis on the Air Facebook page. Mary writes, I get prioritizing health care and essential workers. Will that include teachers? And what place on the priority list will people with disabilities have? Our family members are at higher risk for co- contracting COVID. If hospitals are prioritizing patient care due to shortages, they are at risk of not getting care. It's happened already. Do you know if there's any sort of provisions in place for those two populations that Mary talks about? So I'm not involved in that, and that's really more of uh, on the governmental side. Um, What we have to really hope for is complete transparency so that when those priorities are given out, that they explain why the priorities have occurred. I would guess that teachers would be in a higher risk group, Mm. but frankly, um, those decisions are And it's really not even clear to me who is making those decisions because the federal government probably can provide guidance, but the decisions will probably be made more on the the state and the local levels. And we do what prioritization is. We do want to mention that Dr. Randall Williams, uh, he's the secretary of the Missouri Department of Health and Senior Services. He actually had a press briefing with Governor Parson this morning, just before our show. Um, He said Missouri has 10 sites that are equipped to handle the cold storage needs of this Pfizer vaccine. That's 94 degrees below zero, if you can believe that. And they anticipate that in December and January, they will probably be able to distribute the vaccine to tier one. And that is long-term care facilities staffers and healthcare providers. And Michael, I know you said you're not directly involved with this, but hearing what he explained there, does that seem realistic? Does that fit with what you know about these things? Uh, I would have to take his word for it. Um, you know, they're going to have a better idea of what's going to be available and when. Um, the government at all levels has been negotiating and, and anticipating the rollout of these vaccines, the availability and the rollout. So I, I think we have to take their word for it. And again, it's going to be crucial to be transparent so that folks will know where they where they fall and um, and how best to anticipate how this is all going to work. You know, you mentioned a lot of this could be left to the states. It does seem like, um, you know, under Trump, the U.S. response to this pandemic was something where states kind of had to take the lead on many things. Do you think maybe a top-down approach could be a good change as we're looking at vaccine distribution? Well, that's probably as much a legal question as it is a scientific, and I'll stay away from all things involving the law. Uh, I think at a minimum from a science standpoint, the federal government really does need to lead in terms of providing information and guidance. Hmm. And so that would come in the forms of information coming from the FDA, from the Centers for Disease Control. But again, I think it's more of a legal question as to will states be required to do this? And, and one of the hot buzzwords that undoubtedly is going to enter the lexicon soon will be mandate. Hmm. Um, because the question will be, is a vaccine going to be required, for example, to send your kid to school? You know, Historically, that has been the case. But in recent years, um, the anti-vaccine movement has been pushing against mandatory vaccination for all diseases, be it chickenpox. And you can anticipate that that's probably going to apply to COVID-19 as well. Do you think that could present a real complication here? Is that group strong enough that they could block school districts, say, from requiring this? They have in many states. Uh, matter of fact, the state of Iowa to the north just um, avoided put, uh, the, the mandate question uh, for all vaccines, all, all childhood vaccines. But also keep in mind that the, the latest polls reveal or suggest at least that about 50 percent of Americans are skeptical about a vaccine, hmm. a COVID-19 vaccine. And in part, that was the unfortunate decision to 
name the vaccine um, development campaign Operation Warp Speed. Yeah, that, that does seem to suggest like, man, we're just pedal to the metal. Like, forget about your concerns. We're doing this. That, that might not have been the greatest name. The law of unintended consequences never failed. <laughs> so some people were skeptical about this, um, and and maybe on the front end it was wise to be skeptical. But this anti-vaccine movement, this sounds like this would cross the line from good skepticism into the land of conspiracy. Well, and what we really need is, again, full transparency as to both what we know and what we don't know about how safe and how effective the vaccine is. Hmm. Not to mention who gets it first, second, third, and so forth. So we talked a little bit about who gets who gets in line for this, and I know that's that's up to the states, and that's not something you're directly involved with. But talk to me a little bit about the distribution. What does it take to get these necessary doses in the right place and get ready to go? Has that been a pretty complicated issue in the past? In the past, that's been a hugely complicated issue because keep in mind we're talking about immunizing just in the United States 350 million Americans with two doses of a vaccine, which means you need compliance because one dose isn't going to do the job. And getting that material to the right places at the right time and the people ready to go, again, not once but twice, that can be challenging, particularly in more rural areas where someone may have to travel quite a distance. I mean, imagine Montana and and places that are a, a bit more remote. Add to that complication that the temperatures that some of these vaccines have to be stored, so the virus the vaccine from Pfizer um, requires a temperature, as you mentioned, of about a minus 100 Fahrenheit. And the one from Moderna requires uh, about four degrees um, Fahrenheit. Hmm. And so both of those, it's, it's likely, given the timeline, that we're going to be looking at a mass vaccination campaign in July or August. St. Louis in July or August can be kind of hot. And um, that raises questions about, you know, stability of the vaccine. There's a a term we might want to be aware of, which is called wastage, which is basically vaccine that's gone bad in the same way that milk and other things can go bad. And about 25 percent of vaccines on average are subject to wastage because of those conditions. Wastage is the term? Wastage is the term, vaccine wastage. Wow. So it's just vaccine that can't be given. Two important terms you've, you've given us today, mandate and wastage. They are both uh, have their, their moments of anxiety <laughs> surrounding them. And thinking about this massive effort, as you say, this is, this is huge. Has anything of this scale ever been done before in the kind of time period that we're looking at? In the kind of time period, no. We have done it worldwide e- even. Um, and the best example of that is smallpox. And you could argue that we do it every year in the context of influenza. The problem is that only a fraction of the population elects to take it. So we have the capability of pulling it off. With the influenza vaccine, the storage conditions aren't quite as onerous. And ironically, there's much more information, yet people decide not to. And that raises the question that without all of that information, how are people going to respond to this vaccine? And again, we're going to learn on the fly, as we have with everything in 2020. Boy, this is going to be so interesting to watch how it plays out. Um, I keep hoping for non-interesting times. Um, Michael Kinchin, our last minute here, what gives you hope as you look at where we're at right now? We have accomplished in six months something that I think almost none of us anticipated. And there was sort of an inside joke among different vaccine experts, and we've been talking um, off record And we anticipated, our guess was, that somewhere between 30 and 50 percent protection from the first vaccine. We hoped it would get better. And it is, I mean, that is more than double. What we're seeing now is more than double that. So that is a huge opportunity for hope. And 
you know, this is um, an amazing accomplishment in and of itself, and I really do think this will be compared with the Apollo space program in the future. Um, but we still aren't there. Again, we can smile, but we can't pop the champagne cork until such time as we know it's safe, we know it's effective, and we know that the patient or that the population is fully protected. Well, I'm going to enjoy that smile for now, and I will look forward to the champagne. So, Michael Kinch, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. something new from today's episode, consider leaving us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the easiest way to help people discover our show. We appreciate it. Thank you. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com.